welcome to the show. Thanks very much, man. So for the uninitiated, and I would include myself in this, tell us what game theory is. Well, very simply, game theory is kind of the mathematical study of conflict or cooperation between any kind of intelligent, rational decision maker. So it's really using some detailed analysis, you know, mathematics, things like that to help kind of predict behavior. Um, But it can be used in a lot of different ways. I think, you know, really simply just navigating your way through an interpersonal kind of situation, Um, really complex versions of it involve, you know, lots of different stakeholders or, you know, players, if you will, is the term we use in game theory. But how do they, you know, ultimately uh, achieve what's important to them without uh, necessarily kind of burning bridges? There's always, you know, an outcome in every interaction that we have. So just using some analytics to understand, you know, what our best pathway forward may be is a, is a really good kind of basic way to put it. So is it like a st- statistical study of the probabilities of how uh, outcomes are going to be based on people and how they work together? Yeah, great question. It's a little bit less probabilistic and more kind of behavior driven. Uh, so the kind of classic prisoner's dilemma is, is something that a lot of people are familiar with. You know, you have two prisoners, right? If one uh, sort of rats on the other, you know, they can uh, get their sentence diminished. Whereas if they both kind of rat on one another, they both go away for 10 years. If, you know, if one uh, chooses to remain silent and the other doesn't, they get off scot-free. This is sort of two by two game theory, but it's a little bit more behavioral focus, I think is the easiest answer there. How was First of all, like this is wild. And I mean, as, as a therapist, I'm super cool. Uh, well, I can tell, I, I mean, right off my, right off the top, I'm like, God, where was game theory when, when Harley was ratting on, on JJ to get him thrown in the, in, in the, in the prison, what was going on? Who are the game theorists there to, to help out the Cro-Mags? Um, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> that's a good reference. The, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, pride myself from using using my inane knowledge of hardcore to uh, make examples in the business world. Now, what's the point of this, man? What's the use of this thing? Because I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm super interested in this idea, again, especially coming from like a therapeutic background. Um, but you always hear people talk about it in podcasts and they speak about it like with this great level of knowledge, but it always sounds like maybe like a stupid person who's latched onto a, like a cool sounding thing. And they're like, Oh yeah, it's just a classic game theory. It's like, do you, really, do you really know what you're talking about? So like, what are we actually talking about? What's the practical application of this stuff? For sure. I think honestly, conflict resolution is going to be a big one. If you have any type of leadership role, conflict is something you're going to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Conflict resolution is, is comes in many formats, certainly whether it's, you know, a situation you're trying to navigate your way out of, uh, whether it's a labor dispute or something that's a really large scale or something as simple as, you know, you work in a, what's a good uh, example? Let's say you work in a sales environment, right? You have a top sales guy and he decides he's going to leave the organization. You know, as a leader, that's a big hiccup. You're losing a key talent, uh, but you maybe have uh, other individuals that you think may be able to manage the, you know, the clients of this individual, whatever that looks like. Very simply, let's say you have two people that want that book of business. Well, you know, ultimately you have to make a decision. You have to say, somebody has to get this book of business. Game theory really just allows us to understand that each of these entities, yourself included, are going to have something that's going to be important to you in the situation. So me as a leader, uh, you know, I really want this book of business to be serviced properly. The two salespeople competing for it, naturally they want that book of business. Very, very simple, classic kind of game theory here would be, 
the equivalent of, uh, I don't know if you have kids, um, but there's this old thing, uh, you cut, you choose, you know, you have one kid who's going to split the piece of cake. Well, the one is going to, you know, split the cake and the other gets to choose. That's game theory as its most basic format. Well, if you say to these two salespeople, all right, you divide up the book of business, you know, person A, you get to divide up this book of business. Person B gets to pick which uh, portion of the book of business that they want. All of a sudden, you have a kind of meaningful conflict resolution. I no longer have to make a decision that's going to appear like I've favored one entity over another. I have these two kind of individual entities that were a bit combative, but now they both have a resolution that they determine it's fair. So that's a really simple, simple way of sort of saying, you know, how does understanding conflict uh, and perhaps removing the onus of one person to just make a decision using a little bit of basic game theory to, to get to, you know, a proper resolution. Okay. So what does the day-to-day of a game theorist look like? And I know everyone's different, different companies, you know, different disciplines, but what is like the role of a game theorist look like day-to-day? I think the biggest thing is understanding whether a problem is going to be multi-stakeholder in nature. You know, if, if you came to me and said, if you're a large corporation, you came to us and said, Hey, we need to overhaul our IT department. Well, it's not really something we're going to be able to work on. Is there conflict? Is there uncertainty? Is there different stakeholders that are vying for positioning here? No, you just need a better IT you know, solution. The day-to-day is really determining whether, I think ultimately, the tools of games here are going to be helpful because you, you totally killed it earlier. It's become this kind of industry buzzword, especially as it's you know gained popularity. It's like, well, game theorists say this, and people are saying, you know, you can use game theory to win your March Madness bracket or whatever. It, ultimately, that's you know, it's not a, it's not really a tool that's going to help you. It's just become this kind of flashy buzzword. So, really, the day to day is determining whether there are problems first and foremost that game theory can actually help with. And then helping logically kind of work through the basics of them. So uh, for every problem, there's always going to be, we call them players. That's a game theory term. Who are the players? You know, who are the stakeholders? Who does this really matter to? Uh, The second piece there is what are their options? You know, what can they do? Rather than getting too wrapped up in the, you know, what they want to do or what they should do, really just focus on what could occur or what they could do. And then the last piece is what are their preferences? You know, what is important to them ultimately? Because if you have something that's really, really highly valued by one, you know, one party, one person, one entity versus something that's, you know, less so, perhaps there's a trade-off there. Perhaps I can give up something that doesn't really matter all that much to me, uh, you know, to somebody that it's going to be, you know, really influential or, or effectual in terms of changing their perspective on something. So I think that's a long-winded way of not really answering your question. Uh, it's sort of, uh, I think the day-to-day is do we determining whether we have a really good problem and then kind of breaking down into the problem into those key components to see if it's then worth analyzing. Okay. Analysis so, itself is kind of works like, a, you know, sort of works like a chess match that you're going to run a couple of billion times. But at its core, you know, the the concepts are really applicable to so many different situations. All right. So is this like, like when we're talking about like the analysis of stuff, is this like gut feeling, like reading people, reading situations, or is there actually some kind of technique involved, or is there some kind of software involved? Like, what is the way that things are analyzed? So for us, there is a software component to it. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's uh, chess playing software on steroids, if you will. You know, you're sort of what I do as the entity that's kind of navigating those relationships is I really try and take a, you know, a team of people that are entrenched on a problem and help them kind of understand and organize their best knowledge. So again, going back to those three key principles, who's involved? You know, what could they do? What do they want? And then the software itself, you know, we kind of use as an assist because 
every time you're adding an action to any type of model, it doubles in size. Right. That gives you an exponential growth. It's, it's another decision that could be taken or maybe not taken. So even in a small model, let's say you have 30 different options, that's going to give you a billion different ways that the situation could play out. Right. You have uh, uh, two to the power of 30. So a decision can be made or not made times 30. Right. And uh, that's going to give you a billion ways. So it just becomes unmanageable for people to work through. But what's interesting, and I think prior to maybe me joining this organization, me being so entrenched in these game theory ideas, was that, you know, there's a huge human element to it as well. Like you can have an academic output that says, hey, this is something that's probably going to occur. You have to look at it and say, is that actually logical? Does that actually make sense in the real world? Uh, or is this something that just only makes sense in kind of that software driven or academic kind of space? Yeah. So like the way I look at things when I'm, when I'm working with clients and, you know, kind of like doing team assessments or an organizational assessment, or even an individual assessment is always use a concept that I call hard data, hard data and soft data, hard data being like things that you can actually factually know based on our general understanding of what can and can't be a fact, right? Like what is this person's job? How many reports do they have? Like how many peers do they have? So like hard data, soft data would be like, um, how do people feel about things? What do they want? What are their goals? And soft data can only, and the reason I call it soft data is that someone could say something to you, but it doesn't actually mean, and they might even think it's the truth, but it actually might not be the truth because from a psychological perspective, their actions are different than a person who's actually pursuing that goal. Using that framework of like hard data, things you can factually say like, yeah, like here's a nail. I, I know that this is a nail uh, versus soft data, which would be things just based on people's um, wants, desires, what they think they know about themselves, what they think they know about other people. Where does like, how does game theory play with those kinds of those two things? And I know I'm injecting my framework into, into game theory, but from a basic idea of like hard data versus soft data, how does that play? Yeah, that's actually a really cool question because I think it can be both depending on how you want to structure what your ultimate goal is. Like if, if let's say you have a labor dispute, right? Let's say you're going to, you have an organization and they have, uh, we worked on a, a really, really cool case uh, sort of in uh, Southeast Asia around a labor dispute. There's a mining company, extraction company, and you have all of these employees, right? And they've, they've walked out, they've walked out of the job and they're saying, Hey, you know, we don't want to do this anymore. Well, uh, we get brought in to say, well, is there a, is there a way that we can kind of navigate uh, through this situation? We're, we're really in the trenches here. We obviously know that these people aren't happy. You know, that's, that's something that's going to be soft. But there's going to be a number of hard factors that may influence how they respond to this situation. Perhaps it's giving them benefits. Well, that's tangible. You know, you can put a dollar value on what providing somebody with benefits may be. That's an option, though. We could do that. We could also just uh, increase our investment in employee support programs. Well, that's a little bit less ta tangible. What does a, an employee support program actually look like? So I think dialing in what the goal is, is really the key because you can really use it in both. You know, if you wanted to build a model that was all just behavioral pieces, and I like the language that you use there, you know, from you have this therapy lens, sometimes things aren't always so cut and dry. It's not like I'm going to give you $5. It's, it's I'm going to give you my time and attention, but I want to know that that's valued. Well, those are kind of very different constructs. You know, one's really, really concrete and the other's you know, sort of intangible. But ultimately, it's still an action. If it's still an action that you can take, and it's still something that somebody is going to feel a particular way about it, you can kind of navigate your way through it. So I think we've worked on, you know, I personally got to work on some really, really cool high level stuff. And the high level stuff tends to be more of that kind of softer stuff. And then we've worked on really, really specific granular, like 
you know, how do we win a tender in Sweden? Well, the options might be offer a 2% discount, a 5% discount and a 7% discount on our product. You know, that, that becomes, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, a little bit less interesting, certainly, uh, but the value of the exercise still remains the same, right? You're going to get insights on what your best option is to take. Yeah, let's let's play out that soft that soft data uh, side of it a little bit more. So, can I give you an example of where I think of like hard versus soft data? Please, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about like like there's a, a mountain that someone wants to climb, and there's an established route route up the mountain, and it's a you know an advanced trail. So, hard data would be like we know we know where the mountain is, we know there's a mountain, we know there's a trail, we know that based on how um, trail difficulty is assessed. You need to have a certain amount of skill, ability, you know, experience, all of that certain kind of gear. So then we could look at the person. We say, okay, well, do you have the gear to be able to do this? Do you have the experience to be able to do this? Do you have like would be kind of generally assessed the about of experience and physical fitness to be able to do this? So that for me would be all hard data. And then hard data would also be like you know, weather, like all of those kinds of things, time. Soft data would be someone's observation of themselves and someone's like like way that they look at themselves and like even like someone looking at a challenge and being like oh i could do that when in reality they actually based on the hard data actually couldn't do it based simply on the hard data but someone's assessment of themselves can trick them into thinking they can do something that they actually can't do and they'd go and do it and fail miserably or um, soft data and someone's belief in themselves and understanding of certain kinds of situations can cause them to not do something that they totally could do 100%. But where I think it gets really compelling to me is that someone's resilience and like, how do you measure someone's resilience, someone's belief in themselves, someone's willingness to take risk could get them to do something that they do not have the, um, you know, physical fitness uh, experience, maybe even gear to do. But somehow they still do that thing. And we see this all the time. Like we just see people just like bust out, run a marathon. People do these like totally wild things just because the way they think about themselves and the opportunity, but also their resilience and ability to like adapt and maintain is much stronger. So like for me, that's soft data because you don't really, you can't tell whether or not someone can do that or a group of people could do that. So how does that play into, into game theory? I think kind of neutralizing the way that we look at what an actual option is, is really what helps us kind of capture those ideas. Because you're right, you know, can you execute on something? Well, there's a number of, you know, tangible factors that are going to go into that. The intangible piece really comes from understanding what we want uh, and how that can kind of influence us. So I think, you know, as a construct, uh, you know, this, this is sort of a good example, because how do you tangibly say, do I have resilience? Uh, well, there's a number of components that are going to contribute to whether you do or not. Sometimes just kind of neutralizing the way we talk about things is really what's going to help us kind of draw at that idea of whether we will be able to do something or whether we won't. So, for example, if you were going to, let's say we're going to build a mini model kind of on the fly of this example that you have. Do we have the gear or purchase the gear? That could be your option, right? I could purchase the right equipment. I mean, it's very tangible. I could purchase the right equipment to do this. But, you know, do I have the resilience? That's a tougher, much tougher of an ask, much tougher to build out an option. So maybe the option in isolation is to execute on a plan. 
Well, the plan itself, now all of a sudden, now we have, you know, we're planning for the the logical, we're planning for weather, we're planning for, uh, you know, uh, the gear again, to use that example. What, we're, what we can't plan for, what we can't incorporate into the plan is this idea that we maybe, you know, have the wherewithal to do something. Where that piece comes into this is in the preferences, right? So when we start talking about what's important that's where we can kind of draw out some of those, you know, softer examples. So maybe what we're looking at is uh, climb the mountain. That's, that's an option. I can either do that or I can not do that. Ultimately, if we simplify our thinking in isolation, that is your option. What's going to go into making sure you climb the mountain is, is really going to be uh, where it's going to become a lot more nuanced. My other options are, you know, buy my gear, train uh, for a year prior to doing this. These are all decision points that I could take or could not take. When we get into the idea of preferences, we start talking about the impact of taking these options. Well, maybe it's really important to, for me to get the gear, right? That's going to be high up on my idea of preferences. Maybe what's most important to me is actually climbing that mountain, though. This decision point where it's like, I'm going to do this thing. If that tends to be the highest preference you have or the most impactful option that you have in front of you, all of a sudden we can kind of release our own blinders and we can say, well, if this is more important to me than anything else here, if this is more important than the gear, this is more important to my fitness, then we can start breaking down the intangibles that are going to go into, you know, ultimately executing on what's most valuable to us. So I think very simply when it comes down to those three, you know, I'll call them inputs. Who's important in this? You know, we know who that is. I'm important. I'm trying to do this thing. You know, what can I do? Well, I can put my finger on that. What do I want or what are my preferences? What's most impactful to me? That's kind of where we can, we can really get at this idea of those intangibles of, you know, what's it going to take for me to actually get to this that is outside of the scope of just spending money on gear or training for a year. So if what's paramount to me is climbing that mountain, what am I going to need that's not represented in a tangible option to help me get there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. You know, I, everything that I, that I do both, you know, in my business and then uh, musically and just basically in my life is always about like pushing myself, you know, taking that next leap. Um, I'm relatively fearless when it comes to stuff like that. And actually, let me say this, I will always take the leap, but it doesn't mean I'm not afraid. I'm definitely afraid. And I, I shouldn't say I'm fearless. I'm, I'm actually totally afraid of when I do things, but I don't let that fear stop me. And I don't let that fear stop me because I'm like really have a good sense of I've got a strong track record of being able to pull stuff off. I can adapt when there's, you know, chaos and tragedy and, and horrible stuff, but more so my sense of my sense of self of being able to like really make things happen is established on a long history of doing it and just like a deep belief in myself. But it doesn't mean I don't wake up at like three in the morning and, you know, like totally terrified and have anxiety and, and all of those things. And the reason I, I bring that in is what I find quite hazardous around these kind of like what I call marquee terms or marquee words. So, for example, people talking about game theory, but really not knowing what game theory is or resilience. Um, and I, I find it really dangerous in leadership where people get these words or phrases that sound right like oh yeah we're we're gonna build up the resilience of our team it's like man, I, I mean how like what are you talking about or yeah or like oh you know from a game theory perspective well, what are you actually talking about and i'd boil it down to the, the i think the word that that really gets the most punishment on this is strategy it's like oh we just got to be more strategic or that leader needs to be more strategic and i always just kind of roll my eyes when i hear that it's like if I ask you two questions, you are going to be on your heels. You're going to have no idea what you're talking about because you're using a word that feels good, 
but it actually doesn't have any true value in the discussion. So when you unpack game theory in that way for me, it's like that, that makes sense. Is there anything you want to say on what I just said there? Yeah, I think you're so bang on, right? We have these things that kind of enter into our zeitgeist, these terms that come about and you have a basic level of understanding. Like, I think you can read a, you know, read a piece of paper on the prisoner's dilemma and and sort of understand it at its core. What really is important is understanding what is valuable to these actors. You know, if you're in a leadership position or let's say you're the executive at a company and you're, you have goals that you've laid out and they're just growth goals. Uh, you can say, well, these are all these things we can do to drive growth. And if it's not working, we need a better strategy to do so. Ultimately, the people that are in the trenches, the people that you're responsible for leading, it's really important to understand what is valuable to them. We Again, I keep using this term preferences. It's just a game theory term, but it's really value. That's really what we're talking about. And, you know, in a prior organization, I, I you know, was in a leadership role and I think I've learned a lot. I've, I've, you know, sort of round the edges on my own ego over the years. And I think that's something we all, all struggle with. But, you know, I, it was such a masterclass in understanding that people are motivated by different things. With a sales organization, you know, and I'm responsible for managing a team of salespeople. Some of them are making sales left and right. Some of them aren't. And understanding that, you know, each hurdle is different uh, was important to me. But what I really realized when it comes to this this idea, exactly what you're talking about is, when you're building the game, so to speak, you can't build it from just your own perspective. You know, I had a salesperson I worked with and she was so good with clients, just unbelievable. But her motivation wasn't really all that monetary. She wanted to do a good job. She wanted to, you know, really uh, have uh, lasting relationships. And that was really what motivated her. She dealt with a lot of anxieties and things like that. I think we all deal with, you know, 2021, we're more aware of what these look like. But I remember having these days where she'd come into my office and she felt like she dropped the ball on something and we would just lay on the floor in my office. I'm in a suit. I'm laying on the floor in my office with one of, you know, with one of these salespeople that I worked with, just trying to get her to kind of calm down, get out of her own head about this misstep that she made or it's even a perceived misstep. Perhaps it's not even a real misstep. And I had other people that I would walk into their office and I'd be like, hey, you lazy, you know, whatever. It's time to get to work today. And those two things were so individually tailored to what those individuals want. And as leaders, what we can do is we can look at a sales force and we say, everyone here is going to be motivated by what I think they should be motivated by. You know, make more sales, make more money, whatever that looks like. People are motivated. People's preferences are very different. So if we can kind of better understand that idea, we can make better decisions. It's not always about saying we need a good strategy for the masses. It's about saying, what on mass can we do that's going to be valued by these people that we're trying to motivate? So I think you're, you're really killing it. You're hitting the nail on the head there. You know, it's so much more granular than just saying strategy this you know, motivation that those things are so, you know, so individual, those things are so hard to kind of tangibly, uh, you know, to tangibly uh, put your finger on. So uh, I think understanding that people have different preferences and what's at the top, you know, of priority for you might not be the same as what's at the top priority for them. So you can game everything till you're blue in the face, but if it's only your perspective, it's not really going to be a valuable game, right? Yeah, I want to I want to push on that in a second. But I, you know, as we were talking about this, that like, man, these these phrases and words that just like, you know, you can hear the eyes rolling in the in the the, whatever one on one meeting, you got 100 people, 1000 people, just the eyes rolling or those internal groans. One of the ones that just kills me is like, um, 
culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I just like die inside every time I hear that. And I know leaders who have said that. And I know leaders who have said that who are just great leaders, wonderful people. But it's like saying something like that, you can hear the moment where they're waiting for the applause afterwards. It's like, listen, man, that's like the most like... Why don't you just hand everyone an ice cream cone in a meeting and be like, and just be wait for everyone to say thank you. I but figured it out. Crazy. Yeah. Totally. And like, I know, like, I, I know when it's said, well, I don't know. I, be, I believe when it's said, it's said from the right place, but it's like, this is the most nonsense statement. Like, yeah, but what do you even mean by that? Like, what do you mean by culture? Culture for who? From what perspective? What are you going to do to get there? Like, What's going to happen when like, you know, profits start tanking and things get or we have a huge spend to get the culture there and it starts really outstripping what you want to do financially and make that investment. It's such a complex thing. And one of the the things and I, I believe we're on the same page with this. One of the things that I just encourage leaders to do is really think about what you're saying to people. And I have a very simple way that I look at it every single time you're communicating with anybody. And this is just in general in the world. But I'd say from a leadership perspective, you got to be thinking if you're writing an email, you're sending a text, you're having a conversation, you're doing one of three things at any given time. You're building relationships, maintaining relationships, or you're breaking relationships down. Like I believe in our day to day, we're essentially spend most of our time maintaining relationships, but you can maintain a great relationship. You can maintain a neutral relationship, or you can maintain a terrible relationship because you're stuck in a cycle with people. And you know, a lot of that has to do with like the, the things that we get stuck in saying and the ways that we talk about things. And I encourage people, it's like in your day to day as leaders, it's like, say less, speak with caution, be thoughtful and not like awful caution, but just thoughtfulness. You want to be trying every day to be like building relationships or maintaining good ones. And if you can building from neutral relationships or even damaging relation or poor relationships. That should really be the goal of a leader is you should always be thinking uh, in your communication, you're maintaining your strong relationships and you're elevating your neutral relationships or repairing your poor relationships. If you can, at the very least, not doing any dam- more damage to them. Um, and, and always thinking about how do you like build and maintain that stuff? Things like, you know, uh, culture eat strategy for lunch. For me, that's just like a damaging statement because everyone, like there's going to be people who are like, oh yes, this, oh my God, the, the great, I'm using my, my aristocratic tone there when I take on that accent, but that idea like, oh yeah, yeah, that's the greatest thing. But like, there's so many people in the room that are like, I, I hate my job. I wish you would shut up. Like it's, it's, it's really important. Yeah. It's really important. So but there is a way that I, I I think that we could hit on there that I want to talk about. But anything you want to say about what I just mentioned? Yeah, I think just, you know, working with the type of people that I do, like, you know, we tend to spend a lot of our time working on really like large, complex problems, you know, with senior leadership teams at, you know, Fortune 100 companies uh, more often than not. And as somebody who's, you know, been in leadership role throughout my, you know, professional career, what I've realized is a lot of that you know, sort of uh, buzzword speak and all the eye rolling and all of that, it tends to be sort of with the the middle of the pack, if you will, like people that are sort of on their way up because the best leaders, you know, what they're communicating is that they trust the people that they're, that they're working with. They're not up there just saying blanket things in hopes that everybody receives them properly. You sort of shed this ego and you say, well, I'm in this leadership position. I've surrounded myself with, you know, good quality people that know perhaps more about what we're trying to do here than I do. And I think, you know, communicating 
appropriately what your goal is, you will be far more respected by shedding all that BS. You know, just saying like, this is the goal. We're going to rely on, you know, you guys and the ethos that we're trying to build here to get there is far more impactful. Just saying, I trust you. I trust, you know, the leadership people that are, are reporting into me. And there's this sort of uh, idea that was became really clear the more senior the folks I worked with. They, they just don't go down that road. So what is it, you know, sort of interestingly about kind of middle management, if you will, or people that are on sort of an upward trajectory, if you want to talk about the corporate world, what is it that makes them think that ultimately, you know, these things are what's going to motivate people? And I think more often than not, it's there's just no... Uh, emphasis put on capturing the perspectives of the people that are rolling their eyes. They're saying, I'm your leader. You need to kind of listen to this thing that I'm implementing. But th those people's leaders don't think like that. So why do they? So I think, yeah, just sort of an observation about working with just different levels of structure. The best, best, best leaders don't do that stuff. But the majority of the kind of middle management type people, you know, tend to. And it's really an interesting kind of study about just, you know, how as we progress as leaders in general, you know, we can uh, be more effective by kind of shedding the things that we think are effective. Am I making sense there? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And uh, let me just add to that, because like, I, I, I think that people who say stuff like that, I, I don't I don't think there's any like villains like twisting their mustaches like, man, I'm going to say this thing now. I think, I think it's just yeah, I think it's people just doing their best. But like when it comes to um, leaders saying stuff like that, I think that people's time is like pressured, you know, like I just know tons of leaders who are like, crap, I've got this important thing I need to talk about. And in the mountaintop moments where people can prepare and they've got time and it, even then they're time pressured. So there's usually not enough um, time that goes into what they're going to prepare. So, but in mountaintop moments, I find less of that stuff. Or if it's said, it's like, Ooh, it's cringy and people learn from it. And sometimes they'll talk to someone like me about it. It's less about those mountaintop moments. And it's more like when you're in the Valley, like your day to day, it's like just the intention of speaking it, it, people don't have time, um, to prepare and, and to be really be in the moment. And where I go with that is that people are mixing up their, the function of their job with the mission of their job. So like the function of your job is like the things that you're supposed to do. Like I have this conversation, I got to drive execution. But if the function of your job dominates your time, then you don't have anything time to do the mission of your job. And the mission of your job is why does your job exist? Well, your job exists if you're a leader to lead people and leading people is like a really wonderful, complex, nuanced thing that requires a ton of time to really think about it. And I find that people spend way too much time on the function of their job, like kind of like checking all the boxes and less time on, on the mission. Like what's the purpose of your job and how do you accomplish that? And a huge amount of how you accomplish that is how you speak with people and what you say and taking that time. And very often my work with leaders is about like just changing up their time allocation about like really understanding like, Hey, when you're in the Valley, it's one thing to do well when you're on the mountaintop and you speak to a bunch of people and you say those things, maybe you use a bit of those like whatever ridiculous phrases, but you can typically recover from that. It's in the day to day when you're like, Oh, well coming from a classic game theory space, it's like, nah, no, don't say that. Like take a step back. Think about what you're saying. Do you really know what you're talking about? Uh, I spend a lot of time with people. there, kind of reformatting like, Hey, focus more on the purpose. Like what, what is your mission as a leader? How do you execute on that? And less on the function. Cause anyone can do the function. Very few people can do like the mission. Like what's your purpose as a leader? Oh, I think that's so key and hitting on purpose you know, if you can get the people that you're leading to kind of buy into that idea, 
you know, what you say just holds so much more value. And I think you lose the purpose when you get into all of that, you know, sort of industry buzz terminology that you think is, is going to land. And, you know, years ago, like I've worked with sensational leaders uh, and I've worked with people that are, you know, put on a masterclass and how not to lead. And I think uh, I always kind of think about it like this. A good leader, let's say you're sitting on the beach with 10 people, you know, somebody gets up and they're going to go for a walk down the beach, right? A good leader is somebody that you just kind of inherently want to follow. Somebody that you just feel like they must have a purpose for going where they're going. And I'm willing to attach my cart, you know, to that horse because I believe enough in this person's purpose that I'm interested in taking that journey with them or exploring it with them. You know, the bad leader is the guy that's like, you guys have to all get up and follow me down this beach because what's down there, you're going to love it. You know what I mean? And I think there's, uh, like I said, pretty, uh, pretty basic analogy, but there are going to be people in this life that you're going to want to follow. And the purpose driven people, 99 times out of 100 tend to be those people because you're muddying what your purpose actually is by just giving people that sort of lip service and all of that, you know, all of that stuff. It's like every email we're going to loop back around to something. What are we looping back to? Like, just give me the, you know, and there's a whole list I'm sure that we could go through and we get wax on about these things that people say that just instantly, you know, lose you. But what you're losing, uh, you know, at its core is the belief in that person's sort of purpose. When you say those things, you sort of lose your faith in what the broader goal is because it feels to you and, you know, and maybe, you know, the way we feel about things should be, uh, you know, considered more carefully when we have professional interactions. But it feels to you like this person doesn't have as much of a purpose because they're filling you with uh, noise, fluff, things that, uh, you know, are, are unimpactful to you. So when should someone, uh, uh, an individual leader or a team or an organization, when should they start thinking about working with a game theorist? Like what's the kind of situations that people would be considering working with someone like that? I think anytime that there's conflict uh, or cooperation that's necessary uh, between a number of different kind of uh, parties. So really for us, you know, we've worked on really, really broad strokes, you know, strategic issues, big organizations, you know, how do we invest our billion dollar R&D budget over the next five years? Well, competitors are going to respond. That's a source of conflict. So, you know, perhaps we're the disruptor, perhaps we're a status quo strategy that we're exploring. Um, but, you know, there's there's a clear cut idea of conflict and cooperation. We've worked on the really, really granular, you know, type project as well. It's, you know, we have a product that we're launching in a region that we're unfamiliar with. Um, you know, how is the, the, the buyers or, or however you want to frame it, how are the people that are going to be receiving this product uh, going to actually view it? Is it going to be favorable? Do they have something that they already, you know, like? And those, those types of projects tend to be a lot more granular. Uh, but I think the easy answer to the question is anytime that there's conflict or cooperation necessary in a group of different stakeholders, that's where game theory really kind of comes into the, comes into the fray. Okay, cool. Um, what is someone... Like, what does someone's background need to be? So, like, for example, can, like, any Yahoo hop into a role like this? Or do you have to have some, like, really serious, like, training and background? Um, so, I, full disclosure, like, I work with a team of really, really insanely smart uh, analysts. Those are the people that kind of run the softwareized versions of it. Uh, for me, a lot of my training, if you will, like, I have an economics background. I work in finance before I, uh, uh, before I worked here. 
Um, but, you know, I think uh, going back to my, you know, punk rock kind of days, being a young guy, like my motivation throughout my professional career was always like, you know, have an impact, have an impact, have an impact. So when I kind of came across this organization, I got put in touch with our, our president uh, here, our now president, and we just had a, a really good informal chat about how, you know, if we better understood one another, you know, if we better understood uh, how people interact, how organizations interact, we could all make better decisions. And he kind of took me through the, the Coles Notes version of some things that have really had like a global impact that this organization has worked on. And I said, I got to I got to be a part of it. I got to be a part of this. Like, you know, going back to what you said, I'm, I'm ready to dive into the deep end. Like, I'm not as academic nearly as almost everybody else that kind of worked as part of our organization. These are guys with mathematics and engineering backgrounds, you know, really specific, you know, field specific, uh, uh, you know, academic histories. And for me, I was kind of fast and loose. I was like a band guy. I went to business school for a little bit, like, you know, uh, found my way in the finance world. Uh, making an impact was kind of my key motivator. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to let it rest until I kind of got to join this organization. So I, you know, put together a lot of, uh, uh, you know, sort of, we'll call them case studies. I did a presentation to the organization about, you know, this idea of desirable difficulty and how my particular path, you know, led me to be equipped to kind of work in this field. There's a lot that went into it. I won't, uh, I won't bore you to death with all the details, but I think ultimately, you know, the field itself, if you have a, a passion for understanding people, I think if I could go back and do it all again, I would have done some kind of social sciences. Like I read a lot of like, you know, Gladwellian type authors who kind of talk about, you know, how interactions maybe don't always go the way that we think they do. And I think you just got to really love the way that interaction occurs and also take an interest in why sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's really not. Uh, you know, that's a kind of a very simple way of, of looking at the world. But if that hits your kind of passion buttons, which it did for mine, you know, how do I make a global impact and how do I navigate personalities and egos and desires and all of these things? Uh, that we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis as leaders, you know, I really sunk my teeth into the whole concept. So it took about a year for me to join these walls and, uh, you know, lots of back and forth sort of saying, like, I'm the right guy. And I think, well, you're not, you don't have a math PhD. I'm like, uh, full, you know, full disclosure, I do not. But I do have a lot of skills that I've picked up over the years that I think could be a real asset here. So, um, yeah, I think uh, you just got to love people and interaction, uh, you know, whether it's a small scale, big scale. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, to your background, I think any type of therapy, you know, addiction counseling, all of these things are just kind of, uh, they're sort of the two by two version of the same concept. It's, it's me helping you through a situation. It's kind of just the, the more sort of robust version of that. It's me helping you, you potentially helping somebody else, somebody else potentially helping another stakeholder. Um, but at the same you know, sort of a basic level. It's about what do people want? What's going to motivate them? How do we get you out of a rut? Uh, whether it's personally or professionally, how do we navigate through a situation that's, you know, maybe too complex or, or that we're missing the force for the trees on, uh, you know, sort of at a really conceptual level. Yeah. And I love that story, man. And, you know, to be really clear. So when I first became a therapist, well, first an addiction counselor, uh, it was a long time ago and about 20 years ago. And, uh, it was the wild west, man. Like anybody could be like an addictions counselor, like literally anybody. And I remember thinking like looking at my left and my right in these classes I was in, I was like, well, this is not good. Like this is, they got to have some kind of standard here. And then, uh, 
and then it overcompensated and it went from basically like anyone could be an addiction uh, counselor to, you know, have to have a master's degree. And that's, that's cool. Like I, you know, I, I'm fine with that as well, but then it became this like hard block where it's like, you have to have a master's degree. Cause that's where it's like, you know, now we, we want people who have more like a therapeutic background training. It's like, well, you know what? A lot of people I know with master's degrees are also like not very, like, again, I could look left and right when I was doing my master's being like, eh, I, don't, I don't know about this. Like to me, it's not, it's not all about the background. It's not all about the education. It has a lot of nuances, you know, like maybe from classic game theory perspective, like there's a lot of like hard data and, and soft data that's at play of whether or not someone could be of value as a coach or as a therapist. And I think the way that we evaluate people simply based on like their resume and like, what are the, what are the ex, uh, the, um, experience points and what are the, what are the, uh, education points? I, that's only just a small part of the picture. And when we get into jobs that are just like, well, you have to minimum have this to be able to apply. It's like, yeah, I think that's weird. And I, I'll just say as like a coach, I remember the first coaching company I joined, the like the boss was just like an embarrassing clown, like just what an embarrassing leader. And I'm very comfortable to say that because I just think he's just the worst. But I remember this guy, like he was looking at my education and my experience and he was kind of like, into that but what he hated was the tattoos and that i came from a punk band and all this and he was speaking about it as if i'd done like you know some terrible crime he was like well you know this punk i just thought like dude this is going to be the most useful thing here and it ended up being and that's ended up that's how i started cadence was like basically i'm the guy that's like covered in tattoos played in punk bands got a little bit of a quite a bit of experience working as as a therapist on like a street level like i just get people because I've been in a tour equally because I've been a therapist and and equally because I've been in a tour van. And I am a firm believer that like people could be in super crazy, like really intense roles and not necessarily have like a, a, the educational background, but they just kind of get people. Oh, I, I, I think that's just so, so important to understanding, uh, you know, there's a skill set around being able to navigate your way through interpersonal relationships that no book is ever going to teach you. And, you know, going back to that kind of hard line, like you need a master's to be an addiction counselor. I think you need empathy. (laughs) You know, if you, if you have a master's and you have just uh, an utter inability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you're going to be a a poor uh, addiction counselor. You're going to be horrible at the gig. And I think, you know, so much, especially in the, you know, the corporate world and, and for younger people, you know, I'm mid thirties now, but for younger people that are listening, like it gets hammered into you so hard that you have to hit X amount of, you know, uh, educational milestones before you even get a shot in the career world. Like I went to business school. I never, I never completed that journey, right? Like I went, uh, I went to business school. I felt like I was being trained to be a low level accountant at Deloitte. Uh, and I was way more entrepreneurial. I was way more invested in, in sort of, uh, you know, using these kind of interpersonal skills I had to my benefit. So, you know, we had the opportunity, I played in a, a band called kingdoms for a long time and we had the opportunity to go on the road. And I was like, well, this seems like a more logical pathway for me for now. Cause school will, school will certainly be here. And it's uh, kind of punk rock to be like, I'm going to get in a van instead of going, uh, going on tour. I guarantee you, I learned more in that van than I would have finishing that business degree. And it's, you know, goes back to my little anecdote earlier, about lying on the floor with somebody 
school's not going to teach you that that's what that person needs at that moment. Those are things I learned from having a lot of different experiences with a lot of different people, you know, the punk scene, uh, especially, you know, punk and hardcore. Uh, I can't comment too much uh, on it now, just being like an old guy, but it used to be about camaraderie and brotherhood and finding your tribe. And these were people that, you know, had a similar ethos than you, but everyone, you know, you might be at that show because your home life absolutely sucks. You might be at that show because your home life is great and you just don't get along with your parents. You know, there's, there's everybody's kind of motivation for trying to find their tribe is different. Uh, but the interaction that these people have with one another, there's sort of this great equalizer. So if you look at it from a sort of more high level perspective, well, the great equalizer is our ability to communicate with one another. And I learned how to do that in a van. And if somebody didn't take a shot on me years ago in the finance industry of all industries, you know, I met uh, who was a, a guy who was a terrific leader. Uh, going back to my beach analogy, he was that guy. But he said, I'll take a shot on you. You know, you got sleeve tattoos and you, I had a nose ring at the time. And I was like, you know, putting on the cheapest suit that I could afford for my interviews. And he was like, I think you have uh, some intangible qualities here that are going to make you really good in this, you're really good in this business. And uh, I would take my nose ring out and go to meetings with people. And I'd put it back in at the end because I was still a punk rocker, you know. But uh, I think I learned so much more in that van eating ramen noodles and, you know, fighting with my bandmates. And, you know, then, uh, then uh, finishing that business degree would have ever taught me. So there's this idea about desirable difficulty. And, I again, I uh, don't want to wax on too much here. But this idea that sometimes these types of hurdles actually build, you know, build a skill set. And for me, I felt like I always kind of had this chip on my shoulder. It's like, I'm a, I like to think I'm a pretty smart guy, but I didn't have the traditional education and doors were closing because of that. And it just made me work harder. It just made me be more active in my pursuits. Like I ended up in this organization because I did a presentation to a bunch of game theorists about how I'm a good candidate because I didn't go to school. Like that was what that presentation was about. That was kind of the tipping point. So you got to be creative and, you know, it's sort of, you forge these, these, uh, you know, tools uh, based on, you know, uh, having a little bit less of a traditional kind of, kind of background. So I think, yeah, so much, so much of this life is about how we can interact with one another. And, you know, you're going to learn that somewhere along the way, uh, whether it's going to be in, you know, uh, sitting and working with one-on-one with a coach. I'm like a big fan of that. You know, having somebody who objectively can kind of push back on what you think is always right to waking up in a new city in a van, having to make friends and having to find food that you like and, you know, having to get along with a promoter who's uh, kind of an asshole. And, and, you know, you want him to, he's the only guy in that town. So you want him to like your band. You want, you know, all of these things are just like little microcosms of success in the corporate world, success in the independent business world, the entrepreneur world. Like you have to be able to very quickly uh, get on the same page as somebody. And I learned to do that in the van. Yeah, absolutely, man. 100%. I, I love that. It's funny you say the cheapest suit. Uh, when I started working in the corporate world, I owned zero suits and I had to borrow my friend Adam Mitchell's dress pants. So Adam, shout out to you. You, you saved my career. Uh, and then I ended up buying one suit and uh, I was like horrified at how much it cost. And I, my friend Zenin helped me. So Zenin, thank you very much for that. And then I got in my groove of suits, but now, God damn it, to get me into a suit, it better only be a wedding and unfortunately a funeral. Otherwise, I'm not wearing a suit. I'm, I'm, those days are behind me now. Listen, as we're closing off, this is a great conversation. So now I actually know what game theory is. So the next time someone's like, oh, that's classic game theory, I could be like, is it? I know it. And yeah, I know. I know a little bit about this. I'm going to give you three very difficult questions and they're going to get harder and harder and harder as we go along. People come from 
all over the place for this podcast. Some people come to us because they're from the punk world and they're entering their careers and they just want to hear about it. Some people are from the corporate world and they're leaders or they're aspiring to be leaders and they want to hear about it. We've got people who are into politics and who come to it. People who are athletes, people who are, um, come from the political arena, people who are, uh, come from uh, social activism. A lot of different people listen to this podcast, but they listen for one reason. And they listen because they want to hear about people's takes on leadership. So if you think about leadership, how does that play out for you in your life? I think the biggest thing is, you know, there has to be something that fulfills you about being a leader. You know, the best leaders really want to see the people that they're leading thrive. And, and that's an important distinction. You know, I think sometimes people that aren't necessarily natural leaders end up in leadership roles because they're good at kind of focusing on the macro goal. They say, you know, again, the corporate world, you know, let's we want to drive sales. We've identified this individual is pretty good at doing that. Ultimately, there's going to be a ceiling that you're going to hit if you don't fully invest in the success of the people that you're working with. You know, you have to truly believe that as a leader, you're making people better. And you have to truly believe that, you know, your leadership style or the qualities that you bring to the table are going to be something that somebody can actually latch on to improve how they do business, how they do life how they run their day-to-day, -day, how their interactions with people are going to go. You have to truly uh, value what being a leader actually entails. And I think that's wanting uh, or maybe believing that you can actually help somebody be the best version of themselves. All right. Question number two. It's a two-part question. Part one is, what is one piece of feedback that you've gotten as a leader where you need to grow that you've been successful in addressing? That's part one. And then part two is what's a piece of feedback that you've gotten about yourself as a leader that you're still working on and you're not there yet on? There's this old saying and it's, uh, that I love and it's, uh, do you want to be right? And I think, you know, the idea that being right is maybe not the most important, uh, you know, most important piece of of, you know, being a leader is, is something that I've always struggled with. You know, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? Should have finished the sentence. Yeah. I was like, uh, that doesn't sound like a saying. It sounded yeah, like a question. Your thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And I think, you know, uh, ego driven sort of early leadership. I might've been one of those guys that said some BS like, uh, you know, culture is uh, going to eat strategy. Uh, I might've maybe been that guy, but you know, there's this idea that we always have to be right. You know, if you're the boss of somebody and they come to you with a problem or, an, you know, something that needs resolution, uh, you say, well, I'm the leader here. So what I have to communicate here is this idea that there is sort of an objective correct, or there's something that's objectively true. And that's just not always the case. And I think, you know, my, like e the ego of it all saying like, I got to be right all the time. You know, you can be offensive or you can, you know, you can uh, put people off. You can uh, tarnish a relationship that you have with somebody uh, just in this pursuit of saying like, I know this to be true and you have to sort of believe me. Things are a lot more collaborative than, than just the kind of black and white idea of being right. And I think what I'm, one thing that I'm, you know, certainly still working on is just this idea that everybody's going to be motivated differently, uh, trying to kind of fine tune how to most quickly get there, how to most quickly understand, you know, what's going to be your motivation versus somebody else that I might be working with motivation. You know, I think we can all inevitably get there. The quicker you can get there, the less likely it is that you're going to kind of lose that person in, in the journey. You know, understanding that you got to lay on the floor with somebody is different than understanding that somebody needs to be told that they're, you know, lazy and they need to get back to work. Uh, the more quickly you can kind of understand those dynamics, uh, you know, the better off you're going to be. 
I think, you know, that just is going to come from practice and repetition and, and more importantly, maybe just uh, listening a little bit more than we talk. All right. So where, what's, what's feedback that you've gotten that you're still working on? You haven't actually addressed it yet. You haven't been fully successful in addressing it. I think um, for me, you know, just shedding the idea that there's something I can contribute to every, you know, conversation. Uh, I think you, we don't all know anything. And I think I personally, I'd like to get the opinion in. You know, I like to say, well, here's my thoughts on something. I think as leaders, we don't always need to do that. You know, if you trust in the people around you and, and you should be able to acquiesce very easily, that's something I think I'm probably still working on. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. Final question. It's a tough one, man. I hope you're ready for it. I'm ready. Okay. Dystopian future. I don't know. Something's happened. We're in a bad spot. You got five records and that's it. What are those five records? Oh, man. <laughs> That's the toughest question. It's supposed man. to be the easiest question. Uh, Shape of Punk to Come. Okay. So re- for anyone who doesn't know, refused Shape of Punk to Come. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's got to be on the list. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I think maybe Perfect Pitch Black by Caven. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I have a kind of a you know cool sort of personal personal relationship with that record. It was, oh, man. This is... So you really did lay out the toughest question last. I'm, so, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Desert Island Records. I mean, oh, how do you how do you do it? How do you do it? So uh, Canadian band Choke for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like that band was like one of the bands that made me want to you know play music. I'm gonna go weirdly off the grid here, and I'm gonna say uh, Discovering the Waterfront by Silverstein. Not something that uh, I think is the majority of what I listen to, but I'll give you a good reason why that one might make it on there. Those guys were from kind of where we were from, and they were for the first band that I ever saw that started like touring internationally. Amazing to think that somebody that was from down the street from us was doing that. So for me, I was like, what are these guys doing? You know, they gave us all hope that we could, you know, that we could uh, uh, make something of ourselves. So I think that's, you know, that's a, you know, certainly a pretty cool one. Oh man, what's my fifth record? Well, you didn't say which, you didn't say which choke record. All I know about Choke is they're Canadian and they have the nicest touring van I've ever I've ever seen. What were they touring in? And 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 one of their members made fun of me when I was skateboarding out front of the venue and I fell over and I got so mad I wanted to hit him with my skateboard because I was like, how dare you make fun of a skateboarder in front of a punk venue? I was very upset, very very. I've I've never liked that band because of that. Let it be. I'm going on that on that fact. The bass player made fun of me for skateboarding in front of a venue and bailing, and I just thought that is you don't do that. You just don't do that. I was in. I've never liked them. Let's go. Let's go. Needless to say, which isn't the first record, uh, but I think you know, as far as again, sort of same same vibe. Like people putting out really cool stuff. They were kind of from Canada, and you went, ah, oh, man. This is, uh, uh, I, uh, I'll have you know, my list would be so different if you gave me time to prepare for this. I know that's the point of this, man. And like, this is classic game theory. <laughs> Yeah, classic game day. There you go. Shout out to Silverstein, by the way, because, uh, you know. Uh, a band that I have a lot of respect for is Silverstein. So, I, they, first of all, they never made fun of me for falling off my skateboard, nor do I think they would. And uh, I am, uh, I am, uh, you know, I, I think they've, they've done some cool things for Canadian music. Good for them. I, I, I think those guys are definitely, like, legit, like, core punk people. 
You know what, man, I like about this is the last question. And this is the most painful journey I've ever gone with someone to get there. That means these records actually matter to you, which I like. So for anyone who's like, God, this is taking a long time. Just back off. Back off on my man here. He's really taking it seriously. Nothing feels good. That, that was my last record. That's a, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bigger fan of 30 Degrees Everywhere. But I, I'm, Are you? I'm, Can I ask you yeah. why? Well, probably because probably I'm that idiot that likes the demo of everything better than the like you know the, it's like eh, i like the demo better i might be that guy i might be that that idiot anyways listen man this was a killer conversation you crushed it i got learned so much so as we are closing off any last words you want to say any message to the audience and any plugs you want to give i think the biggest thing as far as a message is just you know as as maybe corny as this is to, to throw it in the end, don't let your, you know, your, your path or your journey be a detriment to you really embrace, you know, your really embrace that journey and what you've learned from it. Cause like I said, I work at, you know, an international consulting firm, I get to rub elbows with some of the most, you know, sort of creative and cool leaders on the planet. You know, the executives at like, you know, fortune 20 companies, I dropped out of business school. I spent my developing years in a band and all of those things are probably the reason that I'm here. Uh, I don't know that if I would have finished school, I would have been. So like I said, maybe it sounds super, super basic, but don't just don't get in your own way. Don't feel like, you know, your, your path or your drawbacks are something that is ultimately, you know, going to prevent you from doing what you want to do in this life. That's my, that's my last thing. And I guess, uh, you know, as far as a plug, I mean, the company's called open options. You can look into us. Um, you know, it's, uh, especially Dr. Fraser, our founder, he's the coolest guy. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's getting up there in his, in his years these days, he's pretty much semi-retired, but I, I genuinely think this organization has changed the world for the better many, many times over. He has a, a real ethos about not being evil. You know, if we're working in pharma, we're trying to, you know, give patients better access to, to drugs. If we're working in, you know, oil and gas, it's about trying to, you know, uh, work on environmental remediation, make the world a little bit greener. So, you know, we work in some dirty industries. We're trying to do the good work in those industries. So, you know, shout out to Open Options. It's a, a beautiful place. It's done a lot of really amazing work. And, and uh, I, I just uh, couldn't be happier to, to sort of be, uh, to be where I'm at at this point. So, but yeah, and thanks so much, man. This has been such a, such a cool conversation. Uh, I like how it's not just a, you know, a bunch of questions that just get hammered at me. You know, there's more to, you know, there's more to kind of navigating our way uh, through life than, than just sort of being able to kind of prepare for everything. But the hardest question was still your last question. I'll, I'll die on that hill for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay. Hutton, thank you so much. It's a great conversation and everyone I'll see you in the outro. Spencer, drop the beat. What?